0: Hey there everyone, this is Dave DeBoer with another episode of the Property Profits Real Estate Podcast. Today it's my pleasure to be interviewing Kellen James, a young punk real estate entrepreneur all the way from London, Ontario, who's done some amazing things very, very quickly. Reading through Kellen's bio and seeing what he's up to, very sharp real estate entrepreneur, working full time, by the time he was the age of 29, he was able to create a portfolio of over 30 doors, I believe it was. Is that correct, Kellen?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, it was 32 doors.
0: 32 doors, create a full-time income, become financially independent of a multi-million dollar portfolio and quit the J-O-B
1: <laughs>
0: at a very, very young age. So, Kellen, welcome to the show. I'm looking forward to picking your brains.
1: Yeah, for sure. And it's good to meet you for the first time too, Dave. Appreciate it. All
0: right. Well, thank you. So. You got started house hacking and you've moved in. It seems like your primary strategy is the Burr strategy. So first of all, tell us in your definition, what is house hacking and how did you get started with that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty basic. Just the idea that you can live in a multifamily property or even just a single family property. You can sometimes rent out one, like live in one room and rent out the other room. So sometimes people live in a student rental or you can, if you want, you have your own dedicated, you know, private unit. Then you can live in one unit, rent the other one or two or three units, You know, usually a duplex, triplex, or fourplex. In a perfect world, when all is said and done, the rental income from the other units is enough to pay for your mortgage, property taxes, insurance, and utilities, and you're able to live for free in that property, which really helps your debt service ratios, helps you continue saving your income from your day job or whatever it may be, and continue acquiring real estate from there
0: interesting yeah so what what did you do to house hack your very first house hack what was it
1: yeah so basically as like a quick preamble of what like my story is I uh I did computer science for my undergrad degree up in Sioux St. Ontario I moved down to London Ontario started working in the computer science field for a company called Cisco which a lot of people know and then another company after that saved up around 120 grand just by living frugally you know paid for my own school all of that and then bought my first property, which was the house hack with 5% down. And so that was the, the property was 177000 So 5% was like a little over $8,000. And I could have done 20%, but I really wanted to keep up my purchasing momentum. So I actually took $25,000 out of my RRSP through the home buyer's plan. And I only used 8,000 of it for the purchase of the property which is completely legal. And I was able to keep the rest of that money and plan on using it for either partly for some renovations, but also just for the next purchase. So it's kind of a nice workaround to be able to access some of your RSP funds on that first purchase Mm -hmm. and use it for more than one property. So bought that property, lived in one half. It was a duplex in the Old East Village of London, Ontario. And I was living in there. The property, the mortgage was like $700 or something like that. And the tenants on the other side are paying $950. So uh pretty simple situation, a side-by-side duplex with, you know, dedicated front and back doors and it was perfect. I was able to, you know, if I wanted to, I could walk or bike to work from there. And my goal was to be able to buy a property that I could live close to work and close to downtown. And as it turns out, that's what a lot of tenants want as well. So it kind of worked nice. out well.
0: So how did you get sparked about real estate in the first place? What was it that was like the light bulb moment for you? And at that point, Were you thinking I I want to get the heck out of the whole job thing, or was it just like a sideline thing you were
1: thinking? Yeah, no, that was laser focused financial independence. So I had read on like financial independence subreddits and Mister Money Mustache and some of these online bloggers that talk about financial independence, and they're doing it a lot of the times through saving, living frugally, investing in index funds, and talking about like the four percent safe withdrawal rate from your RSPs and TFSA's and whatever it is in Canada that you'd use. So I was looking into all that saving up my money. My plan was, you know, 10, 12 years, maybe retire. And that kind of, you know, just by living a frugal lifestyle. And then I was like, well, it makes sense that I could, instead of renting, I could live in a duplex for free. So I kind of started looking to that. I started reading on bigger pockets. I ended up setting an alert on bigger pockets for my local city because the podcast always said, do that. And I got an alert that somebody did said, Hey, like anyone else in London, Ontario, investing in real estate, And a few of us got together. There was no meetup groups or anything like that existed at the time. It was pretty quiet. And I ended up meeting up with guys like Matt McKeever, Jeff Weibo, my friend Dylan McLaughlin. Mike Rosart ended up showing up a few months later. And we all ended up kind of getting together. Eventually, the four of us started London on Fire. And so that was London, Ontario Financial Independence Retire Early. And we've kind of grown a community here. Obviously, we can't meet up currently, but... Now we have like, you know, 40, 50 people coming out every month, just coming out, trying to learn about financial independence. And a lot of us are doing it through real estate investing. So Very yeah, cool. it's so all about you, putting the day job.
0: Transition from that into like really rock and rolling with the, the burst strategy.
1: Yeah. So once I bought that duplex and I was living for free, I knew that now the plan was to buy the next property with 20% down and continue doing that refinancing. So Bought my next duplex in Soho of London, Ontario. I bought it for $127,000, which is a killer deal at the time. And especially now, of course, I ended up putting in, and that was like $27,000 under the asking price. I put in $25,000. So I was in for about $150,000 and it ended up reappraising at $250,000. So I got all of my money out plus tens of thousands. And that really helped my momentum for the next purchases. And I've done deals similar to that since where I get all my money out plus more, which really helps keep up that purchasing momentum. And then along the way, if you do deals that are that good, you can also occasionally buy a property where you don't necessarily get all of your money out, maybe you're 30 or 40 grand out of pocket, but the property cash flows well. So I kind of built up my portfolio in that regard.
0: Very, very nice. So what would you say are some of the biggest mistakes you see people making when they start investing in real estate or they start trying to do what you're doing what are what are some of the things people screw up at
1: yeah so i think right now it's a lot of lack of patience and it used to be the exact opposite so like the big thing you know three years ago was analysis paralysis and now it's completely the opposite people have the exact opposite of analysis paralysis It's just it's mania you know people are buying you know x number of doors and properties all at once and they're doing it with all these joint venture partners and none of their own money and a lot of the times, the properties I'm finding don't make any sense. Maybe sometimes they don't appraise for what they should, or they don't cash flow the way they should, or the ARV is just not there because people are just expecting market appreciation and not understanding how to force appreciation. Right. So I think that's one of the biggest mistakes I see now is just the lack of patience. I think I recommend people for their first deals, you know, first couple of deals, try and do with your own money first, and then learn how to take on that risk yourself. And once you're a competent investor, you can start bring on joint venture partners, you can treat the deals, you know, as if they're your own. But honestly, if you do a couple of burrs yourself and you get all of your money out, or all your money and more, or something like that, you're very quickly going to see that you have serious purchasing momentum, and they don't actually necessarily need to bring on external capital and give up equity. I mean, like any business, ideally, the more equity you can maintain, the better. So mm-hmm. if you can keep up purchasing momentum and maintain 100% ownership, you know, you have fewer relationships to manage. You keep 100% of the cash flow appreciation and you just don't have anyone to answer to. If you have a renovation you want to do, or if you have a unit that's vacant, you don't have you know a partner breathing down your neck trying to decide you know what you should do. And you can look at your portfolio as a whole and treat it as your portfolio as a whole rather than one property that's with somebody that you may need to treat with a little more favor.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, the way you've been doing it, putting in your own money and then rinsing and repeating, right? So you're just recycling yeah. your down payment, recycling your renovation costs, you had the discipline to sock away a lot of cash at a very, very young age. Yeah, that completely makes sense. And I it's interesting, yeah. I, I I think when you start seeing people get into that manic stage of buy buy buy, that's when things get really dangerous because they're not they're not investing, they're speculating. They're yeah. they're hoping for massive market appreciation. You know <laughs> they yeah they say that you, you got you to start being pretty careful when you start seeing the barista, the local barista, at the yes. Starbucks starting to buy real estate.
1: Exactly. That's, it's like, I mean, honestly, I went through Bitcoin mania myself and like, you know, I was really into it. I wasn't like putting a lot of money into it, but I was investing pretty heavily or like my time, I was investing my time pretty heavily into it, reading a lot and, you know, pretty early on, back when it was, you know, under a hundred bucks and like before it hit the 10,000 plus, And at some point you're right. Like my barber started talking about it. My mom started talking about it. It's like, now this doesn't make any sense, you know, (laughs) because clearly this is just pure hype train. Right. And I think we're kind of getting there. Maybe we still are kind of getting there with real estate. And like, for me, like the kind of the turning point is like when you, and like, I don't really know how to say it in a nice way, but like, you know, It should be intelligent people making good money in real estate. And like if you see people who aren't doing it in an intelligent way, making serious money, that is something that's just not sustainable. So that lack of patience that we're seeing, the bad deals people are doing and people still making money, that's clearly something that just won't last. You can't buy a property $20,000 over market value or... And then, you know, a year later, refinance out 50 grand, because the only way that happens is through market appreciation. and We have no control over that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's the same thing as, you know, it's the greater fool theory, right? Like you're going to buy based on the idea that it's just somebody else is going to pay more. And I mean, any investment like that is just not not the way to look at things.
0: No, definitely. And it sounds like you've got a, a very long term perspective on thing. You're, you're not flipping properties. You're buying them. You're holding them you're forcing up the the value. In most cases, you're looking for long-term growth. You're looking for cash flow and creating value there long-term.
1: Yeah, exactly. So every property I buy, it has to at least meet the 1% rule or at least very close to it after refinancing. And it has to cash flow very well. I have to get ideally most of my money out, hopefully more in a perfect world. Not all of my deals have been that way, but you know, like I said, sometimes I get all in more, sometimes I leave some money in the deal, but that's kind of my criteria. Yeah, it's very important that the properties cash flow well after refinancing because, you know, if your goal is to leave your day job and reach that financial independence, then that's just the way it has to work. You have to have properties that cash flow well, and you have to have properties where you can get your money back out and continue buying so that you can build that momentum and build a portfolio.
0: Excellent. So, Time flies when we're having fun here, Kellen. And I want to, uh, there's definitely one thing that I want to cover with you before we wrap up. And sure. And that is, what are you finding works best for finding good deals? Because it seems mm. like that's something that, that you become very astute at. And I think you find a lot of off market deals. So it doesn't sound like you're yeah. at least completely reliant on realtors. So, what are some tips?
1: Yeah, so more than half of my portfolio I've purchased privately. I think that a lot of people really rely on wholesalers. I think that what, we, what a lot of people really should do is look at what the wholesalers are doing and do it themselves. Nowadays, wholesaling is very similar to MLS purchasing because they're sending out to a list of people just like realtors list it, send it out to a list of people on the MLS. So when there's serious demand for this kind of thing right now, finding a deal of your own is the key. And you can kind of take on a strategy of buy the best, wholesale the rest. So if you find deals and they don't work for you, you can always make some money on it. But if it works for you, you don't have a lineup of people competing with you just like you would on the MLS. So for me, one of the main tips is just, you know people talk about networking and networking to find deals. I'll tell you, it's not about networking with real estate investors because real estate investors want deals too. So it's about networking with people completely outside of the real estate world. They're going to be your junk removal guy, the pest control guy, your local mail, like post office worker, anybody in your local neighborhood talking to your neighbors, getting really targeted to a specific neighborhood. Those are the people who are going to be excited about you offering them a thousand dollar finder's fee if they bring a property to you. So I always tell people, hey, hang on to my number, shoot me a text. If you ever see someone selling something that wants to sell something privately, I'll pay a thousand bucks if I close on the place. And I've done that so many times now it's one of the most powerful strategies
0: nice very very smart now do you are you doing stuff like bandit signs and vehicle signage and all that kind of stuff or you're just basically relying on, on so
1: first so it's mostly through referrals I don't do bandit signs mostly because they're not legal also it's a little bit I don't know, a little bit trashy I think <laughs> yeah you know it's not it's it's a little messy I don't like seeing them in my neighborhood personally Yeah, it's mostly through uh, like finder's fees and networking through, like I said, networking with people outside of the real estate world. I actually did a video on my YouTube channel about how I find off-market deals, and I kind of went through a huge list of how I approach that. So, yeah, basically take all the strategies that wholesalers are doing and do it yourself.
0: Smart. So, what does your portfolio look like today, if you don't mind sharing, Kelly?
1: Yeah, sure. So actually, I built that 32 unit portfolio in two and a half years, left my day job, went on a three month van trip around the USA, my girlfriend, her dog and myself, we did like we saw like 30 something states, like 30,000 kilometers. And when we got back, I ended up only purchasing one property since then. So it's been one year since I left my day job, been really working on my portfolio, getting the cash flow up a lot of the units I renovate, the rents double. So my cash flow just keeps going up, which is great purchased one property since now I'm learning the game of how to continue buying properties without joint venture partners without a day job. So that's my new niche and really trying to figure that out. I think that commercial properties are going to probably be a route that'll i eventually start going in. If I can find deals that make sense to me. Commercial Um, residential or commercial? uh, Large multifamily. Yes. Yeah. Makes
0: sense. Excellent. Kellen. So if people want to find out more about you and what you're doing and watch some of your videos or what have you, what should they do?
1: Yeah. So Instagram is probably the first line of contact. I answer DMs. I answer every DM anyone sends me on there. So shoot me a message. I'm also on YouTube. Those are probably the best ways. Yeah. Yeah. Feel free to reach out.
0: Under Kellen James,
1: right? Kellen James. Yes. Awesome.
0: Very good. Kellen, thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun.
1: Thank you so much. Good to meet you.
0: Likewise. All right, everybody. Take care. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you on the next episode. Bye-bye. Well thanks very much for checking out the Property Profits Podcast. And if you like what we're doing here, please head on over to iTunes, subscribe, rate us, and leave us a review. We very, very much appreciated. And if you're looking to create a regular flow of inbound investor inquiries about your real estate deals, then I invite you to attend one of my upcoming live online demonstrations. And you can check that out at Investor Attraction Demo. Dot com. take care